Hello scholars, this is the professor speaking, and I welcome you to Hi, That's Scary, a podcast that utilizes cannabis to analyze horror cinema. The title of today's lecture is Soft Boys and Strong Girls, The Ways Co-Opting Gender Stereotypes Saved Christmas, Part 1. Today we will be discussing Gremlins, a 1984 film that is credited with being part of the reason the MPAA created the PG-13 rating. The film stars Zach Galligan as Billy Peltzer, Phoebe Cates as Kate Berenger, Howie Mandel as Gizmo, Hoyt Axton as Rand Peltzer, and Corey Feldman as Pete Fontaine. It was written by Chris Columbus and directed by Joe Dante. The strain used for this analysis was Crescendo Flower with some Jack Herrer Keef. Crescendo is a hybrid strain that has effects on feelings of euphoria, happiness, and relaxation. Jack Herrer is a sativa strain, which added a nice amount of clear-headedness and creativity. Let's get into some background about this film. The MPAA rolled out the shiny new PG-13 rating on July 1st, 1984. As I mentioned, Gremlins is partially credited with this. The other film credited was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You see, scholars, when these films were released under a PG rating, people of all ages went to the theater to see them. From babies to the elderly, anyone could see those films. And see those films they did. These films were a bit different from other PG movies, however. These films had just a bit too much. Too much violence, too much gore, too much scary for a PG rating. Now, what needs to be mentioned is just why exactly these two movies caused such a ruckus. While they were violent and gory, there are plenty of PG films that have scarier themes and imagery after the new rating was put in place. Back to the Future, The Goonies, and Clue all came out the following year with PG ratings despite having violence against children as well as adults, sexual themes, and visually disturbing imagery. Marty McFly fading is terrifying. Clue shows multiple dead bodies and deaths. I'm not even going to get into all the reasons it's baffling to me that The Goonies wasn't PG-13. So what was it? Why didn't this whole hubbub fade after Gremlins came out, or even after Raiders came out? I have a glorious answer for that, and it is the most obvious. Timing. In June of 1984, the following films came out in this order. Gremlins, June 7th. Ghostbusters, June 8th. Raiders of the Lost Ark, June 12th. Karate Kid, June 22nd. Conan the Destroyer, June 29th. Now, remember that July 1st is the shiny rating day. I've done some theorizing, and here's what I believe to have happened. Gremlins happens. It's a hit, but getting some complaints about the microwave scene, among other things. But one movie having a rating problem isn't enough to be more than a blip on the radar. The day after Gremlins was Ghostbusters, also a hit, also scary imagery. Two scary movies in one weekend. Bah! Gotta die out, right? Raiders drops. The Gremlins complainers and the Raiders complainers join forces. 
Ghostbusters is existing during this. MPA starts being like, oh hell, we gotta do a thing. Karate Kid, that shows children engaging in violence, comes, and they're like, oh hell, we really gotta do something quick, don't we? Ramp up production! They're already planning the July drop. They've been known it was happening. And there comes in Conan with its shirtless Arnold Schwarzenegger destroying shit. And the MPAA is there looking like Ben Affleck smoking a cigarette and say, Yeah, fuck. Yeah. PG-13, July 1st. Fuck. If these films had been spaced out differently, aired in different months... I don't know if this would have happened. Take Gremlins or Raiders and stick them in the fall. They're the biggest bads, so they obviously would need to be the ones that would be moved. If there wasn't this weeks of back-to-back pushing the PG envelope, would we have had the bullshit that is the PG-13 horror movie? I'm not so sure. So let's raise a glass to June 1984 for being the messiest bitch that it was. Thank you for your service. Without further ado, let's get scary. We open in Chinatown. Rand Peltzer, an inventor on a business trip, is being led by a young boy through the streets. They reach a set of steps that lead to a basement shop. Inside, there are a vast array of eclectic items. Rand is looking for a present for his son, and the child assures him that everything is for sale. They encounter the old man who runs the store, the child's grandfather. Rand attempts to sell the old man his invention, the bathroom buddy, which squirts Rand with toothpaste. Throughout this, there's been this occasional chittering noise. Rand eventually gets curious, wanting to know what it was, which just shows Rand's not from the city because city people know rats exist. Rand finds the chittering noise in a box, a fuzzy creature that hums little melodies, the perfect gift for his son. Rand offers $100 for it, which is about 250 in today money. The old man says no. Rand offers 200 or 500 today money. Old man still says no. That the creature, the Mogwai, is too much responsibility. Rand, disappointed and mildly annoyed, mentions the child's previous assurances of all items being available to buy. Throughout the exchange with the old man, the child looked shocked at the amount of money Rand was offering and his grandfather's refusal. He tells Rand to meet him out back. When outside, the boy gives Rand the box with the mogwai in exchange for the cash. Rand double-checks the sale since the old man had refused so strongly. The boy says the old man is crazy and that they need the money. Pointing out the obvious, Rand is really exhibiting some exemplary bits of privilege and subtle racism. He isn't acting maliciously. His behavior and choices aren't consciously doing this. But the amount of money he's flashing as a white man in Chinatown is clear class privilege. The subtle racism comes with Rand still buying the Mogwai. If this were a white child and his white grandfather in an okay neighborhood, 
would Rand, an adult, accept the undermining of another adult businessman by a child? One of the many issues that comes with racism is the assumption that children of color look or act older than they are. In comparison to a privileged white child, the boy, while looking 10, has what Rand would interpret as the maturity of a teenager. Teenagers have the ability to make sales like that because they're nearly adults working legitimately. You can't put a 10-year-old on the books. And what happens next truly exhibits just how Rand was being an irresponsible privileged adult negotiating a sale with a child. The boy tells Rand the rules of the Mogwai. 1. Keep him out the light. Sunlight will kill him. 2. Don't get him wet. 3. Never feed him after midnight. Those rules are pretty clear, right? Except they're not, because the boy, being a child, neglects to tell Rand the consequences of rules two and three. Rand, the adult, doesn't ask. He doesn't care, he just wants the box. Is it pertinent information that when Mogwai get wet, they multiply? Is it pertinent information that when Mogwai are fed after midnight, side note, midnight where it's literally always midnight somewhere, that they turn into gangly green creatures that will cause massive amounts of injuries, death, and destruction? I think it is. But I'm an adult, not a desperate child. Rand buys his mogwai and goes on his way. We transition to Kingston Falls. There's a brief little intro of some side characters. The main one I want to mention is Pete, who is helping his father sell Christmas trees. We get to see a little bit of that ever-popular thing where the sheriff tries pulling strings to get free shit just because he decided to be a police officer. One of the other townspeople is nearby and tells the sheriff that he paid for his tree, and it's such a great own. Gremlin said fuck the police. We continue through town, where we meet Billy Peltzer in his not-starting Volkswagen bug. As he's tinkering with it, his neighbor, Murray Futterman, comes over and starts going on this whole foreign-anything-is-crap-American-made-only speech. He's not being aggressive or anything, just like genuinely feeling bad for Billy, while also trying to pull a dad and steer Billy toward better choices. Billy ends up deciding to walk to work as he was already late leaving. He brings his dog with him for some reason, and I'm just wondering why? I know some offices are cool with people bringing their dogs to work with them. I used to work in one. But Billy doesn't work in an office. He works at the bank. He doesn't have a private space with a door he can keep the dog in. Billy makes it to work by the skin of his teeth. He ties his dog up under his desk. Kate Berenger, his co-worker and I'd say friend, comments on his timing as he clips on his tie. She asks him to sign a petition because Mrs. Deagle, the landlord of a bunch of property in Kingston Falls, wants to take away the lease to Dory's, a local pub that's been around for decades. Kate and Billy have some really clear chemistry here, and it's actually a perfect first example of them 
switching places in terms of gender roles and stereotypes. Kate approaches Billy to sign the petition rather than him approaching her. Kate is standing while Billy is in his teller seat, putting her visually as being the slightest bit taller than him, placing her in a slightly more dominant framing, especially because Billy is slouching for most of it. Billy, when giving her back the pen and petition, looks up at her, mouth open, and his cheeks are red. A lot of media will use these same framings and body language when starting to show romantic interest between two characters, but normally the woman or femme identifying person would be doing what Billy is. Also pointing it out now, Billy is always blushing, especially around Kate. In scenes where he's been inside for a bit, he's still lightly pink in the cheeks and the nose. Around Kate, the pinkness gets more noticeable. Kudos to Zach Galligan for being such a great actor to keep up a blush for like 80% of this film, whether it was intentional or not. With the mention of Mrs. Deagle, we see her walking through town holding a broken snowman head. She's stopped outside the bank by someone that I'm guessing she holds the lease for. The woman with her two children tries to ask for an extension on their bill because her husband just got a new job and she's been doing side work, but they won't have the money until the following week. Mrs. Deagle rudely rebuffs her and calls her a deadbeat. She pushes ahead of everyone in line and goes straight to Billy, putting the snowman head on the desk. She complains about Billy's dog breaking it, so Billy, being a responsible adult, asks how much it was so he could give her the money for a replacement. Deagle doesn't want money, though. She wants the dog. She wants to put down Billy's dog. So we really get that full, wealth-hoarding, judgmental, narcissistic feeling waves. Billy's dog frees himself from the rope and jumps Mrs. Deagle, having heard her talking shit. He bites and holds onto her arm, though it looks like all he got was coat. Mrs. Deagle does the whole big thing complaining about her heart and then being cruel and nasty to Billy and then fake crying again. Billy's in trouble. Deagle is the actual worst, and while yes, Billy's dog biting her is showing Billy as an irresponsible pet owner, I really want to let it slide because fuck her. After work, Billy is sitting in Dory's, drawing. He's an artist, a good one at that. One of his co-workers from the bank, Gerald, comes over to Billy. He witnessed the whole dog-deagle situation and, like any movie douche, decides to taunt Billy about it. He brags about his position and prospects before telling Billy he needs to quote-unquote toughen up. Gerald implies that Billy working to help support his family is one of the ways he's weak. With these two, we get a perfect contrast that exemplifies my point. Gerald is very much the arrogant manly man with a superiority complex. Billy is this tender, kind, artsy man that just wants to draw and make out with Kate, and I think that's beautiful. Speaking of Kate, she's working at Dory's pub. 
She comes in time to keep Gerald from being as much of a shit to Billy. She wants to protect him. Do you see where I'm going with this, scholars? Because I'm going to continue going with this. Billy is surprised to see Kate, and she tells him that she works there for free, so there's one less waitress to have to pay. Gerald is pretty disgusted by this. Billy, who I want to point out is sitting while Kate is standing once again, giving her that high advantage I mentioned before, is looking up at her. Pink with stars in his eyes, and tells her how much he likes that she's doing that. Kate does acts of physical service, such as bringing around the petition or waitressing for free, while Billy does more emotional acts of service. Gerald, his pompous ass, tries to shoot his shot, only for Kate to shoot that shot right the fuck down. Telling a man in a position of power over her no to a date? Sassy as fuck? That's risky. She's actually doing something that could be dangerous for her in the long run. But she likes and wants to protect Billy from big mean old Gerald, who sucks. Kate very much exemplifies traits that are more dominant, which is socially considered masculine. This is not me saying that being dominant is a masculine trait, just that it is perceived as such. I wanted to make that clear. Billy exemplifies more submissive traits, which are generally considered to be feminine. Kate and Billy are both doing things and living their lives outside of some of the social norms of their respective genders. Basically, where I'm going with this is that Billy's a bottom, Kate's his top, and in being so, together, they're gonna save Christmas. Billy arrives home and meets with his mother, Lynn Peltzer, in the kitchen. Billy offers to help cook and turns to use one of his father's inventions. They both have this look and you know it isn't going to work. They know it isn't going to work. But he tries anyway. Emotional acts of service in the form of still utilizing the inventions when Rand isn't around. The invention does do the thing where it doesn't work. Billy notices his mom seems off, so he asks if she's okay. Lynn tells him that she had an encounter with Mrs. Deagle, and scholars, she doesn't even need to say anymore. We get it. During this, Rand gets home. He gives Billy his present, saying that it can't wait until Christmas, for obvious reasons. Billy thinks it's a puppy at first, and he looks so happy. They turn on the lights, and Billy meets the Mogwai. He reaches for the creature very carefully. Ran tells him to be gentle, to which Billy responds that he will. He picks up the Mogwai so gingerly and cradles him like a baby. Billy Peltzer is not capable of not being gentle at this point in his life. He's so soft. This whole thing just looked so domestic. Rand tells them that he named the Mogwai Gizmo. Lynn goes to take a picture and when the flash goes off, 
Gizmo yells. Rand remembers that he needs to tell them the rules, which he should have done before opening the damn box. The more I think about it, the more I don't like Rand. <laughs> Billy, at first, was still focusing on Gizmo, but when Rand mentions sunlight being a deadly allergy, he switches his attention really quickly. He heard them. He knows them. He needs to not break them. Billy later plays with Gizmo in his room. He has a little keyboard and has Giz mimic the notes with humming. He does it perfectly and hums his little ditty. It's cute. Giz ends up falling in the trash can and gets injured. Billy scoops him up and bandages him up. He's very much a caregiver. That night, Billy sleeps with both his dog and Gizmo. It's utterly adorable. The next morning... Billy goes downstairs and tries to use the juicer. Once again, he hesitated, but uses it anyway. It gives a false start, seeming like it's going to work properly. It begins to shoot out blended, still with peel, mostly liquefied orange puree. As Billy is getting sprayed, we briefly see him start laughing when he gets hit in the face with the orange soup, and I'm not sure if it was actually supposed to be there. Pete, the kid I mentioned earlier, arrives with the Peltzer's tree. He walks right into the house, these people don't lock their doors, and drags the tree in. He encounters Billy in the kitchen, who doesn't look like he was just laughing, pretty dejected, actually. He explains to Pete what happened. The machine sputters, and both Billy and Pete look like they're trying to hide their laughter a little bit. It almost feels like that scene was supposed to be played seriously, which would still be funny, but the actors couldn't hide them losing their shit a little bit. Gizmo's in Billy's room watching TV. Billy and Pete head up there because... While Pete has been helping his dad, he's been forced to wear a tree costume, and he doesn't like it. Billy, being the best, lets Pete hide it there so he wouldn't have to wear it anymore. Billy introduces Pete to Gizmo. Pete plays with him a little bit without touching him. When he goes to pet him, though, things go wrong. You see, with the positioning of the items on Billy's desk, Pete should have reached around or over to pet Gizmo. Instead, he punches Billy's paint water cup over, and Gizmo is splashed. The water hitting Gizmo causes these little furball Dunkin' Donuts munchkins to start popping out of his back. Five new mogwai sprout from Gizmo. Billy is taking all of this in, noticing that all of the mogwai have different personalities. Pete is already bored and looking at Billy's comics. And, yo, honestly, fuck Pete. Everything that happens from here is partially his fault. Rand obviously having the brunt of the blame. 
But, like, he technically injured Billy's pet and just doesn't care moments later. That's not cool. Especially since Billy was just the ultimate bro and let him hide the tree suit. That's where we're going to end it today, scholars. Tune in next week for Soft Boys and Strong Girls, The Way Co-Opting Gender Stereotypes Saved Christmas, Part 2. Until then, stay scary.